It's Friday, June the 18th, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. And while I can lay claim to that title, I'm not the only Hoover Fellow who is doing podcasts. I could chew up the majority of this podcast reciting each and every one we do at Hoover. Probably quicker for you to go to the Hoover website, which is www.hoover.org, and see what we offer. We just we cover the waterfront. We do foreign policy, education, economics, classics, you name it, we're talking about it. Uh, if you want to subscribe, very simple. Again, go to the website, click on the Publications tab. Uh, go to where it says podcast. You can subscribe to any and all of them. You can also sign up for our monthly pod blast, pod blast excuse me, which delivers the best of our work to you each month. Hoover Podcast is one part of Ideas Defining a Free Society. My guest uh, today joining me from Monterey, California, smart man that he is because it is decidedly cooler in Monterey, I assume that it is here in Palo Alto, is my colleague David Henderson. David Henderson is a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's also a professor of economics at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey. If you read David Henderson's insightful writing, you'll notice two themes. One, that the unintended consequences of government regulation and spending are usually worse than the problems they are supposed to solve. And point number two, that freedom and free markets work to solve people's problems, which is a good segue into what we're going to talk about today, which is wealth and taxes and fair share, the assumption that the wealthy people in America should be paying more. David, thanks for joining the podcast. Oh, thanks, Bill. So I want to start, David, by reading to you a passage from F. Scott Fitzgerald, who wrote the following uh, back in uh, the 1920s, almost 100 years ago. This is from a short story called The Rich Boy, which was published, I think, in 1925 or 1926. Here's the passage, quote, let me tell you about the very rich. They're different from you and me. They possess and enjoy early and it does something to them, makes them soft where we are hard and cynical where we are trustful in a way that unless you were born rich, it is very difficult to understand. They think deep in their hearts that they are better than we are because we had to discover the compensations and refuges of life for ourselves. Even when they enter deep into our world or sink below us, they still think they are better than we are. They are different. So, David, here is F. Scott Fitzgerald writing 100 or so years ago about the rich, saying that they are a different class of people. And, well, looking at them with scorn and derision, I think we could say, interesting for F. Scott, since he was a Princeton graduate and lived a pretty good life. But here, here we are in the 21st century, and the wealthy uh, class in America is under attack. It's under attack in terms of taxation, but it's also under attack in terms of what I would describe as its moral standing in this country, if you will. And by the way, I'm not here, David, to defend uh, wealthy people per se in America. Uh, we can go through a long list of wealthy people. There are some very good people. I'm not going to sit here and defend Jeffrey Epstein or <laughs> Bernie Madoff or anyone like that. But let's talk a bit about what you have written about, which is the assault on wealth. Is the assault on wealth, David, is it something recent or is this something that just kind of goes with the territory of being in America? It comes and goes. But let me just say, you've, you've actually affirmed my decision not to read F. Scott Fitzgerald. Because I think he starts in the middle of the story. But yes. let me, and I will get to that. No, it comes and goes. So during what was called the Gilded Age in the late 1800s, there was an assault on wealth. During the 80s, I think that's when the assault lessened. And I think part of it is that we had some pretty good growth after the 81, 82 recession ended. And so when there's good growth of GDP per person, and it's generally throughout the incomes, you know, the, the range of incomes, almost everyone's doing better. People don't think about it that much. And I think what happened in the early 90s, there really was a switch. Uh, And a reporter at the New York Times named Sylvia Nassar started writing about it, about this inequality. She got a lot of her facts wrong, 
always in one direction to overstate inequality. And, and Clinton talked about it. And, and it's just been, there's been more of that in the last 30 years, I would say, than in any other, any other time in my lifetime. Yeah. Are you, David, familiar with the work of one Abigail Disney? Yeah, I mean, familiar is a strong word. I know she's a Disney inheritor, yes. and she seems to feel really guilty about her wealth, which, by the way, it's true, she didn't work for. Um, so I think I, I, I understand a little about her. Right. So Abigail Disney has a piece in The Atlantic today, David. Abigail Disney, by the way, for our, our listeners who aren't familiar, she's the granddaughter of Roy Disney, who is Walt's brother and co-founder of the Walt Disney Company. Um, so David is right. She inherited a lot of money. But here's what she wrote today. And we're going to tie into another story which recently came out. It's uh, She's referring to a story that uh, ProPublica released, actually, uh, findings of, of billionaires in America and how relatively little they paid income taxes. And here's what Abigail Disney wrote, quote, what's shocking about the ProPublica report, and we'll get to that in a minute, David, it's not just that the tax bills are so low, but that these billionaires can live with themselves. If your comfort requires that society be structured so that a decent percentage of your fellow citizens live in a constant state of terror about whether they'll get health care in an emergency or whether they can keep a roof over their families' heads or whether they will simply have enough to eat, perhaps the problem does not rest with these people, but with you and what you think of as a necessary, proper, and acceptable. And she writes, uh, she adds, by the way, David, quote, as time has passed, I've realized that the dynamics of wealth are similar to the dynamics of addiction. The more you have, the more you need. So here is Abigail Disney, number one, comparing wealth to addiction. But she is also, again, saying that basically the wealthy in America, they're callous. They don't care about those who don't have the same as they do. So again, it's, it's well, scapegoating is the right word, but she is using, she's using the wealthy in America as a straw man for a, for a much larger agenda. Yeah, I would think that there's a range. And I don't know people who are wealthy the way she's wealthy or a lot of the people she talks about are wealthy. I was thinking through in prepping for this. The friend I have who's the wealthiest of people I know, whose wealth I know, has a net worth of 25 million, which is, I would think, pretty good, but not up in her range. But here's the thing. I would bet that people vary, people in the wealth category who are very wealthy vary a lot the way people in other categories vary. Some are very generous, some aren't. But I want to make another point that imagine two people, two extremes. One is Mr. Miser and one is Mr. Generous. And they're both say they both start with a net worth of one billion, which we would all agree is a lot of money. And Mr. Generous gives a lot of it away. So he cashes in his uh, stocks and he pays capital gains and then gives the rest away. Um, and maybe even has a plant and he sells it and or maybe he even dismantles it and sells the pieces. The point is to the extent he does that. Oh, and now let's look at Mr. Miser. Mr. Miser hoards. He's got a lot of stocks. He owns a company. He, he doesn't spend much money on himself or on other people. Guess what? He keeps the capital structure intact. Now, the, one of the biggest contributors to growth and an economist at MIT, Robert Solo, got a Nobel Prize for his work in the 50s on this. One of the biggest contributors to growth is capital accumulation. The more capital there is per worker, the more productive workers are. The higher productivity is, the higher are real wages. And by the way, we saw that in a little way with the 2017 tax cut. We were starting to see by 2018 and 19, before the pandemic, huge growth in average incomes for various ethnic groups, you know, pretty much across the board. Um, and so 
we saw it in real time just a couple of years ago, and already that's being forgotten. And so I think that she doesn't understand the keys to growth. I bet you of say 30 million people who are not doing well, that's like the bottom 10%. I bet you that if they, uh, that, that if, if all of them understood that the more capital per worker there is, the better off they are, under 10% of those 30 million would want to reduce the capital stock and that, or at least slow the growth. And that's what taxation of capital does. All right, now to close out on Abigail Disney, she is part of a larger movement. It's called the Patriotic Millionaires Movement, David. Uh, this was co-founded by uh, Ben Cohen of Ben and Jerry's fame. Uh, uh, Molly, Molly Munger, who's the daughter of uh, Charlie Munger of um, Berkshire Hathaway fame is also involved in this as well. Uh, I caught a um, New Yorker article on this December, 2019. You'll like the headline, quote, the ultra wealthy who argue that they should be paying higher taxes and the subhead in an age of historic disparity, Abigail Disney and the patriotic millionaires. So here's that word patriotism. Now, you know, David, I toil in the in the world of politics. Anytime I see the word patriotism, just as I see the word freedom, I kind of cringe. Um, with the exception, maybe patriot missiles, but you know, freedom fries or just anything done in the guise of patriotism. We're going to get that in a minute because that's an effort in Washington now to raise taxes under the guise of patriotism. But um, this is the idea now that it's a patriotic thing to do to your country. Let's talk about the ProPublica uh, column that uh, that uh, yeah. Disney referenced and that uh, you and I both read here. Uh, if you haven't read this, if you're listening to this podcast, you haven't read it yet. ProPublica is a uh, online publication, and they have a project that they call the Secret IRS Files. Some Somebody is releasing to them what should be private data, which is another story in itself, David, as to how this stuff is getting out and magically appearing online. <clears throat> somebody's, head should, somebody's head should roll. Somebody should probably go to jail for this. Yeah. Uh, what the ProPublica piece showed, David, was that um, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Warren Buffett pay very little in income tax compared to the massive wealth that they have uh, accumulated. And I'd be curious to you if this is kind of an apples and oranges argument, conflating uh, income tax with uh, possession of wealth. Um, Mark, Zucker, yeah. Mark Zuckerberg, for example, owns close to one quarter of Facebook class A stock, which is what's similar to Elon Musk does at Tesla. I think, David, by the way, that Musk uses his stock as collateral to fund other things. So these aren't necessarily uh, wealthy, wealthy people. Um, Phil Graham wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal about this the other day, and here's what he said, David, quote, ProPublica's report claimed the wealthiest 25 people only pay 3.4% in income taxes, contradicts publicly available internal revenue service data on the top 400 income earners, showing that they pay it on average 32% of their income in federal income taxes, including Social Security and Medicare taxes. That same data showed that the very top earners pay an effective income tax rate of 40.1%. The rate is lower for the top 400 taxpayers because each of those individuals is a unique case in terms of how they earn income and how much they give away. So what ProPublica is after, David, there's a concerted effort here. And the idea is very simply this. There are people in America sitting on a lot of money. Uh, there's a government in Washington that wants to spend a lot of money. So let's put the, let's put the uh, chocolate and the peanut butter and put the two together. Let's take the money from the wealthy and put it into the government. But again, the question here, David, aren't we conflating the argument here? It's you're confusing income with wealth. That's right. We don't have a wealth tax in this country, 
per se. The closest we have is when you do what's called realize a capital gain. You sell some asset that's appreciated and you pay capital gains taxes, but that's part of our income tax system. So I looked at the data, I read, read through that article, and what they do is they take the actual taxes paid as a percent of the growth in wealth. Well, of course, the growth in wealth is typically not realized as a capital gain. Right. So um, I was thinking through some friends of mine, I have a friend, and again, I'm not going to name him for obvious reasons, whose net worth is $6 million. He owns a farm in Nebraska. Uh, he owns a number of other things. Um, he, he does get some serious income from it. But I would bet his taxes as a percent of his growth and wealth are about 5 to 10%. And that's just, it's just a crazy kind of way to look at it when you don't have a wealth tax. And by the way, many countries in the last 50 years have introduced wealth taxes and almost all of them have got rid of them, which is yep. very interesting. Right. So you may not be aware, but the People's Republic of California, uh, David, is that's flirting with the idea of a wealth tax. It was floated uh, about a year ago. Uh, it didn't go anywhere in the legislature, but there are still lawmakers who want to do it in California. Uh, the plan they came up with was pretty insidious, David. I think they wanted to start taxing at about $30 million in wealth. And the killer on it was that um, they would base it on your last 10. It was two things. First of all, it was global wealth, not California wealth. So David Henderson could be living in Monterey, but this is how much money David Henderson had in his global empire. Um, <laughs> And secondly, it was based on your residency in California, based on if you'd been, how many years you've been living in California, you pay the maximum rate if you'd lived here for 10 years. And the reason why they did it, David, because they were assuming that if Dave Henderson got nailed with this tax, Dave Henderson would, have, would quickly hot foot it to Montana or Wyoming or Texas. But oh no, their plan would say that even if Dave Henderson leaves the state, he still pays a California wealth tax. If he's lived in California nine of the last 10 years, he pays 90% of the rate and so on and so forth. I don't know if that's constitutional, by the way. I'm not sure if that would hold up in court, but um, they have been flirting with the idea of a wealth tax. And now we see Congress, David, entertaining the thought of a wealth tax. There are House Democrats who come up with, and here's his word again, they call it a patriot tax. And here's yeah. how the patriot tax would work. It's a one-time tax, David, of 2.5% on wealth beginning at $50 million a 5% surcharge of wealth uh, surpassing $100 million. If you do the math on it, um, Jeff Bezos, the Amazon, the Amazon founder, would uh, take a hit of about $10 billion. Elon yeah. Musk would get hit for close to $7 billion. Yeah. Bill Gates would have to chip in about $6 billion. I'm very curious as to how they would pay that, by the way, because I wonder how much cash they're actually saying. I'm not sure how large of a check they can write, per se. Um, here's the problem with it, though, David. If you do the math on this, um, this Patriot tax, this one-time tax would raise about $450 billion. Uh, Democrats are talking of spending up to $6 trillion in infrastructure right now. My crude, my crude math tells me that is pennies on the dollar in terms of their ambitions. But yet we have the idea of a wealth tax. And again, it's that word, David, Patriot, Patriot as in it's the patriotic thing to do, give more of your money to the government. Right. Oh, by the way, just... Uh... The infrastructure thing is two trillion. The, the overall budget is six. But yeah, your point is well taken. It's not pennies on the dollar, but it's dimes on the dollar. Right. Um, yeah. And here's the thing. Um, notice that these people pushing this are people who didn't earn it. They inherited it. And I think I think we have to go back to a little bit of what F. Scott Fitzgerald said, but point out that he started in the middle of the story. Right. He wasn't talking about the rich per se. I think, I haven't read them, but it sounded like he was describing people who inherited their wealth. And a lot of people who inherit their wealth have a lot of guilt about it. 
but that has nothing to do. I mean, think of that list. Musk, Bezos, they didn't start with much. Bill Gates had a trust fund that he didn't draw on when he started Microsoft. And it wasn't a huge trust fund. It wasn't a million. It was less than that. And so, you know, these people earned a lot of their money and the other people want to go after, after them. And by the way, there's a very good solution because different people have different views. If they think that, if they think because they're so blessed, people should give more money, let them do it. There's actually a form you can fill out that the IRS has. If you want to send them a billion dollars, you're completely free to do so. And of course, none of them do it. What they want, yes, the, let's, let's give them some credit. They want to be taxed. But the most important thing is they want everyone like them to be taxed. And right. so they're kind of rounding error on the overall tax. And by the way, that's the argument they use. We're just rounding error. But the point is that they're, you know, they, they just want to go after people for being wealthy. And I think that's just fundamentally un-American. It's anti-freedom. I know you don't like that word, but it's anti-freedom. It's anti uh, the idea of keeping what you earn. And it's pretty vicious. Yeah, I just don't like it as an adjective, David. When you take oh, okay. French fries and call them freedom fries, I think you're oh, just bastardizing the idea. It's a, it's a yeah. cheap thing. By the way, while we're talking about millionaires, uh, uh, there are approximately 20 million 20 million millionaires in the United States of America. About 6% wow. of the population actually has seven-figure wealth. How many millionaires do you think there are in Congress, David? Okay, so 535, let's see, I'm going to say 210. Pretty good guess. According to the Center for Responsive Politics, 229. Well, I was close. I was within good guess. 43% yeah. of all members, or about seven times the national average. So yeah, easy for them to talk about wealth, I suppose. And um, by the way, we're in California, so think of Nancy Pelosi, very wealthy. Dianne Feinstein, very wealthy. I mean, these are very high rollers. Well, but that kind of gets an interesting topic here, which is what exactly is wealth in America? And again, I don't want to come across as too callous to it, but there was a time when you could say somebody walking down the street, look at them and say, there goes a millionaire. And you thought, my God, that person has more money than I could imagine. But David, that was back in a much simpler time when, you know, you could get a meal for a couple of dollars and you could buy a house for ten dollars or $20,000 and get a car for a couple of thousand dollars. In other words, economics were just scaled differently. Um, now, you know, I mentioned the 20 million um, you know, Americans who have a million dollars or more. It's not that lofty a figure simply because why? If you inflation. <laughs> inflation, but save your money and invest wisely, it's not that hard and inherit money from you know, your parents if they did well too. Yeah. It's not hard to get to seven figures in America today. So question, David, is what exactly, in your opinion, what really constitutes wealthy in America right now? I still think a net worth of a million is wealthy. Mm -hmm. A net worth of two million, I think, is clearly wealthy. Right. Because if you think about it, let's, and by the way, I used to give this little talk to my students at the Naval Postgraduate School. I said, don't think about how to get rich quickly. Think about how to get rich slowly and take advantage of what Albert Einstein has said to have said is the most powerful force in nature, compound interest. Right. And so start when you're 30. And when you're 60, you're going to be wealthy. You'll have at least half a million. You might have a million. And so, you know, if you get to 60 and you've got 1.5 million, let's say, uh -huh. you're in pretty good shape, you know, because you can eat away at it about at least 4% a year and then it'll keep compounding. And that's 60 grand right there, plus your other retirement things, your social security right. and so on. So I do think that that, uh, that is still serious wealth. But let me point out, I want to tell a story about my daughter. 
we made a lot of sacrifices to send my daughter to an expensive private school, Robert Louis Stevenson. I said to my wife, when we started this in the early 90s, babes, we are not going to Europe until sometime in the middle of next decade. And I, I predicted pretty accurately. And right. we'd, never been, uh, we'd never been to Europe. And we, so we made a lot of sacrifices. She came home from ninth grade one day at Robert Louis Stevenson and said, Dad, are we poor? And I said, no, honey, we're wealthy. And our net worth at the time was probably 300 grand, huh? you know, with our house equity being a huge part of it. And I said, and if we had one third our wealth, we'd be wealthy. Because think about what people have. So right. I gave this another experiment in my class where I said, okay, think about what Rockefeller had, think of his life, think of your life. And, and so he didn't have air conditioning for most of his life, any of his life. He couldn't fly in a plane until the last few years of his life. Uh-huh. He couldn't just play music in the middle of the night and have them get it note perfect every time. He couldn't do all these things. And then more important, he didn't have penicillin. And so now think about Calvin Coolidge's son, teenager, played on the tennis court, played too hard at the White House, got a blister, died. Right. With penicillin, he wouldn't have. So I then asked my students, would you rather be Rockefeller then or you now? And roughly 90% want to be themselves now. Well, what's that telling you? That's telling you whether we call it wealth or utility, that they are doing extremely well relative to the wealthy people that F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote about. I don't know if you've listened to our colleague Glenn Lowry talk about this. You know, Glenn is a, is a fellow now at the Hoover Institution, a professor at Brown. And he really goes after the idea of people who just love to go to nostalgia and say, boy, I wish things were like they were in the 1950s. And <laughs> he very quickly go to his riff, which part of the 1950s would you like? You know, the part where you can't get an organ transplant, the part where, <laughs> you know, you can't eat lunch at the same counter or drink yeah. from the water fountain, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know? And my, my father had polio in 1943. My sister had polio in 1952. In 1979, that almost essentially or almost disappeared in the United States. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, just things like that. Yeah, I had a grandfather I never met because he was a cop. He was uh, he had health problems. He uh, went to a bad doctor. He got a staph infection. He died because, again, no penicillin. So yeah. these things would happen this day and age. Um, but we do talk about wealth. And now we see what's going on in Washington. I want to talk now about the uh, about Bidenomics and what uh, what the Biden team has come up with. Uh, first of all, they want to raise taxes on households, higher taxes. And I think the income bar is four hundred thousand dollars for this. Um, I know there's a little uncertainty about what exactly $400,000 is, if this is individual income, joint income. Um, We go back and forth on that. But the one that has my attention, David, is capital gains. And it has my attention because it hits me personally. (laughs) This is is the idea that you're going to go after capital gains from beyond the grave. As I understand this, if 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 I accumulate stock and then I want to pass along stock to to uh, my heirs and heiresses, um, they would have to pay the unrealized capital gains um, at death. Um, and I think it's for unrealized capital gains over a million dollars. And again, this gets the idea, David, of being a millionaire in America, maybe not being as wealthy as we think, because I, I think of myself as a rather middle-class guy for me to pat myself on the back. Um, and I'm passing along money to others in my family so they can go to college and things like that. It drives me crazy that the federal government's actually going to come after my family. <laughs> Well, I can't defend them from this, yeah, and I'm not, yeah. and I'm not a light my cigar the twenty bill kind of guy. So it's, yeah, I, yeah. you know, I mean, do you first of all think this capital gains thing is going to see the light of the day? But then let's talk about a larger picture about what happens if Congress does decide to start mucking around with capital gains. 
Okay, so first of all, my so I'm an economist. I can say if they do this, I predict mm. those effects. I'm less good as a political scientist, but still yeah. I'll try. I think that that's what's called the stepped up basis at death. That's what prevents you from your heirs from paying capital gains taxes. I think that won't disappear. I talk to a lot of people and I talk to a number of Democrats and anyway, <laughs> a lot of them don't like it. And some of them don't like it for obvious reasons. They would be hit by it. Others don't like it because they think there's, there's just kind of an unfairness about it. Yeah. Whether we'll get a higher tax rate on capital gains, uh, I don't know. Um, I, I know that it's weird, isn't it, that Biden... A number of people voted for him, including a number of my friends, because this guy's a centrist. We're going to avoid all this Trump stuff without huge, huge left wing policies. And we're getting them all. And so I don't know what the stopping point is, but I do think the honeymoon is over for him. And and I think there will be a slowdown in some of these things. But again, oh, but I want to point out one other thing, which I think is pernicious which is he said, or his people said, that the capital gains tax increase would apply retroactively. Mm -hmm. So even though they proposed it a month or two ago, right. it would apply to your capital gains this year, even if you got them before the proposal. Right. And that's just crazy. I mean, actually we'd had something like that in 93, the Clinton tax increase where he raised the top marginal tax rate to 39.6%. Mm -hmm. He applied it to January 1st, 93, even though it was passed in August of 93. Right. But uh, the retroactive thing, David, that's because they just don't want to bull rush of people unloading their capital gains before the rates go up. Right. No, that's right. But it's just, you know, there's actually something in the Constitution saying there, should, there can't be any ex post facto law. And that clearly is one. I'd also be curious about the effect here in California, David, because the dirty secret of a Californian, by the way, is a wash in cash right now, a, uh, a budget, budget surplus, again, depending on whether they listen to the governor or the, uh, the more sober uh, analyst who studied this. It's about $38 billion or so. This is largely driven by what? Capital gains. It is yes, stock, yes. It's a stock market, which, which you know, managed to survive the pandemic handsomely and the movement of real estate in California. So I wonder if you start tinkering with capital gains, or are you going to start you know, knocking out the pins from underneath that, that crazy experiment that is the California government? I think, and in fact, I wrote a piece for Hoover right. pointing out that the people who should be most strongly against this federal capital gains tax increase are California Democrats. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that you, you raise the, the tax rate, we have absolutely clear evidence that the amount of capital gains realizations will fall. Now, that, that doesn't mean revenue will fall because it's rev realizations times a higher percent. But here's California, which has a 9.3% rate on, for most people on capital gains. And realizations fall. That lower number times 9.3% is a lower number. And they could, use a, they could lose a few billion a year for the first few years due to that. So they should be saying to, to Biden, don't do it. California congressmen should be voting against this. Will they? <laughs> I'm not sure, but they should be. Well, this is one of the interesting aspects. So when you start talking about doing taxes um, and, and changing things around and you look at the, you know, the Democrats control the House and there's a 50-50 split in the Senate. But if every senator votes on the party line, the Democrats control the Senate as well. Uh, but you look at an issue such as salt, state and local taxes, for example, Democrats are horribly divided on this issue. Why? 
New Jersey, New York Democrats, California Democrats desperately want to want to put this back in. Uh, Democrats from other parts of the country don't want this. And so uh, it seems to me it's going to be a real challenge if uh, if you want to get any kind of consensus on a tax bill moving forward. That's true. And by the way, Bernie Sanders, I rarely have something good to say about him. <laughs> but on this one, he was good. He said, well, what are you guys talking about? The, the, the limit on salt, the state and local tax deduction, uh-huh. hurts birch almost entirely just hurts very high income people because they're the ones paying those high state and local taxes. So what are you saying we should raise that limit or get rid of that limit? You're going to hurt you're going to help a whole lot of high income people. What after all do we Democrats stand for? So at least he had the the you know the the courage or whatever you call it the the consistency the philosophic consistency to come out against that. Bernie Sanders, by the way, David, he uh, is no stranger to the idea of a wealth tax. He ran on this when he ran yeah. for president. Yeah. Um, he uh, wanted, I think, a 1% uh, tax on wealth over $32 million um, and uh, 8%, uh, 32 million, excuse me, and uh, 8% over 10. Uh, Liz Warren also wanted a 2% annual tax on wealth over $50 million and a 6% annual tax on wealth over a billion dollars. I'm kind of curious as to what the motivation is. Now, with Sanders, it's pretty easy. Bernie Sanders is a socialist. Now, he'll call himself a democratic socialist, but he's a socialist. And so, hey. He was very, very much in love with communism for a while. So income redistribution, redistribution, what the hey. Um, It's Liz Warren who kind of fascinates me here, David, for a couple of reasons. Number one, consider where she comes from. She's a product of Harvard, ultimately. She's surrounded by elite people, but she is at all times, she is attacking wealth in America. If she is tilting at one windmill at all times, it's the financial class. She wants to declare war on Wall Street. So this gets back to what we started about F. Scott Fitzgerald demonizing wealthy people in the 1920s. What is driving the likes of Liz Warren to demonize wealthy people in America today? Is it is it just that they have too much money, or do you think Liz Warren is trying to take it beyond that? That it's not just they have too much money, but these are really just kind of awful human beings who don't care about the human condition. <laughs> to me, that's kind of what yeah. she's getting at here. That just these these people just really care not for America. I do by God, so I'm going to take their money away from them. Yeah, I mean, I'm always hesitant to talk about people's motives when I've literally never met them or talked to them. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I'm more comfortable saying her idea is a really bad idea. I'm willing to say it's ev- it's an evil idea. I'm not willing to say she's evil. I just, you know, I I, I kind of. I'm a little nervous about No, but she that. seems to think that capitalism is inherently evil. Oh, yeah. And she was always saying, I'm pro-capitalism. She's really not. She wants to regulate the heck out of it, tax the heck out of it. I've got a plan for that was her big thing when she was running. And always her plan involved more regulation and or more government spending. So, no, she she believes in this stuff. And I doubt she knows much of this. I mean, I just when I meet politicians and talk to them, I learned just how little they know. I've never met her. I've met a few senators. I've met probably a dozen members of the House, you know, and most of them don't know much and don't want to know much. Right. Uh, if you ever watch a House hearing or Senate hearing on technology, by the way, this is certainly the case where the members <laughs> almost always had questions fed from their aides and <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about. You expect to hear any any minute for them to say the interweb. You the know? interweb, yeah. It's like those progressive ads, how not to be like your father, you know, and it's like they are. 
Very good. But, you know, David, you wrote about this back in April 2020 for the Hoover Digest. The title of the article was The Assault on Wealth. I believe it's now a book that we have out. Uh, you can get oh. it on Hoover as well. Um, and I'm just curious about the assault in this regard. Now, it's easy to point at Zuckerberg, who's he's a nerd and he buys a lot of land in Hawaii. And he's kind of a strange guy when you get down to it. Yeah. He's an easy target. Bezos is kind of an easy target because why? They just have just so much money. It's unfathomable how much money guys like have, you know, 20, 50, $60 billion. We just can't begin to understand this. Is the assault, David, is it driven just because these guys have so much money? Is it is it driven by just we don't like them, we don't relate to them? Or is it driven by just um, envy of the wealth they have? Or is this kind of a manifestation of a larger issue? Because if you go back and you look at uh, what Abigail Disney was writing about in her piece at The Atlantic, she quickly says these men. So she's kind of putting along gender lines as well. A lot of her charity, by the way, goes to women-related things. So when when the wealthy are under assault in America, is it because they simply have too much or just because their lifestyle is just not relatable to average people? Um, so I, as I said, I'm, I'm hesitant to ascribe motives to particular people, but I think I've seen enough to ascribe motives on average. And I do think envy is a huge part of it, that they're responding to constituents who envy, but mainly they're responding to their own envy. So, you know, whether it be Abigail Disney, well, not her, she's wealthy, but all these people in Congress that I think they're really, their own envy is driving them. When I talk to kind of normal people, and maybe I'm not talking to the right people, I don't see people who are worried about the next mortgage payment saying, we ought to tax rich people more. I mean, some right. of them do, but but it's just like they're trying to figure out how to make the next mortgage payment. And, and so, you know, that's, um, I, I just think, in fact, here's what I would say. To some extent, envy is a luxury good. And these people in Congress who, who have net worths of, of millions themselves, I just noted that Elizabeth Warren in that piece, her, her net worth at the time was 12 million. I bet it's higher now with the run-up in the stock market. And so, you know, it, it's, a, it's a luxury good for them. They can afford to be envious. They can afford to act on that. And, um, you know, I just, yeah, it's, it's a kind of, and envy, I think is, you know, you think about the 10 commandments, uh, the 10th one, is, I think it's the 10th, don't envy, right? Uh, don't covet thy, your, your whatever. <laughs> I used to know this stuff in Sunday school. Uh, but anyway, don't covet, don't envy. And, you know, um, it's kind of eating us alive, I think. Curious, David, is your thoughts on profiteering? Uh, I was not around for the Second World War. I'm not familiar if Henry Kaiser ever faced this uh, um, this issue. Henry Kaiser building ships all over the country for the war effort, and I assume his shipbuilding enterprise making money at the same time. So I'm not sure if anybody questioned his patriotism, if you will, to use that unfortunate word. Um, but the question of him making money during a difficult time. But you do see the likes of Bezos and Zuckerberg, uh, Reed Hastings at Netflix, Musk at Tesla, the idea you guys are making a ton of money during hard times for people, shouldn't you be giving it back? And I don't know how to address this, David, because on the one hand, you would think, okay, maybe if I made that much money on the pandemic, I might want to do charitable things. On the other hand, let's say you're Hastings and you run Netflix. Well, Netflix made a lot of money because why? People were ordered by the government to stay inside their houses, and he was providing entertainment to them, just as Bezos was providing a service that brought food and, and goods to their houses as well, saving them from the pandemic, if you will. So I go back and forth on this all, all the time. So what, what do you think? Well, I, I think you're right. He, he, Netflix, Reed, Reed Hastings earned it. And that's the thing that's left out. It's not zero sum. It's, it's both sides gain from exchange. 
And here's an interesting statistic. William Nordhaus, who won the Nobel Prize in economics some years ago, a Yale economist whose big thing is global warming. This was not mentioned when the Nobel Prize Committee said the reason for the award, but he wrote a very important piece some years ago in which he estimated for innovators, what percent of the gains from their innovation do they get? And the number he came up with was 2.2%. Right. And the other 97.8% goes to us, goes to consumers. And the reason is that, you know, they can't price to everyone just exactly what they'd be willing to pay. Competition will undercut that. And then competition generally undercuts their attempt to keep earning high prices. So they earn a lot the first few years, then competitors come along, compete the prices down. And so, you know, it's just, they're doing us a huge favor and well, I don't want to say I want to tax them more. You know what I want to say? Thank you. Okay. You know, one card that has not been played in the wealth debate yet, David, and I wait for it, is the issue of race. Yeah. In this regard, if you look at millionaires in America, I think about three out of four, David, are white. Uh, African-Americans, Asians uh, constitute each about 8% of America's millionaires. Hispanics make up about 7%. So I just wonder if you're going to see race brought into this. And this is the question I ask you as an economist. How do we create more minority millionaires in America? By getting rid of restrictions on, on what you can do. And just, just have a much more free market economy, much less regulation. People have more opportunity. I mean, that's how to do it. And then the other thing, though, is how do you create it so a million goes further? So right. if you think about California, we, the governments at various levels, state and local, say you can't build. And so we have my house, which is worth over a million. It's crazy. You, you wouldn't come to my house and say, this is a fantastic house. It's 1,900 square feet. You know, it's nice. It's nice. Nice kitchen and stuff. Yeah. But there's nothing really special and not a great view, you know. And, and, and the reason is that governments have restricted the supply. So I think, you know, if, 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 and by the way, that is why a lot of us are millionaires because our houses are worth over a million and we own like a hundred thousand in mortgage on it. So, right. uh, so the, the thing to do is make a million go further by getting rid of restrictions on, on building. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Now, there's a piece in uh, Bloomberg the other day about California, and it just uh, talked about how wonderful the California economy is. And it was just written all sorts of economic stats about you know GDP and productivity and so forth. And what you noticed missing from that conversation was words like cost of living, inflation, affordable housing, and so on and so forth. So yeah, it's this this quality of life issue in America and the affordability issue that uh, that you know it's going to rear its ugly head. Right. Well, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, it's. Um, and by the way, my proposal might actually reduce the number of millionaires because there'd be a lot of us whose net worths would fall by a few hundred thousand dollars. So if you're at 1.2 and your house loses 300,000 in value, you're at 0.9, you're at 900,000. But so be it. Uh, the, the, what we would do is we would make it much more opportunity for the young people, younger people to stay in California and raise families. And that's very hard for them to do right now. Yeah. Uh, final topic to get into with you, David. Um, you know, so the ProPublica piece gets into the issue of how you can be sitting on so much money, but pay so little in taxes, which seems to be an opening to something that's fairly obvious. Uh, this October is 35 years since Ronald Reagan signed tax reforms, which, uh, which was the last 
less real kind of honest to goodness scrubbing of the federal tax system. Presidents have come along and they've adjusted rates and addressed certain loopholes and, and deductions and so forth. But this was the last kind of full-blown knockdown, drag out conversation that Congress and the White House had about taxation in America. Uh, there's a wonderful book called Showdown at Gucci Gulch by a couple of Wall Street reporters, which which chronicles everything that went on. And it was a it was a show, uh, no question about that. But 35 years since then, David. So it was saying to me that if you are really worked up about how much these people pay in taxes, maybe you need to sit down and have a conversation about the tax code in America and what people can use for deductions and loopholes and so forth. But then again, David, that takes us to a conversation about maybe we should have a VAT in America. Uh, should maybe, you know, get our colleague Alvin Rabushka in on the conversation. We should have a flat tax, if you will. But if we were to have a conversation about tax reform, where would you begin the conversation? I'd want to talk about Alvin Rabushka's and Bob Hall's flat tax. I think it's a great idea. I think they scoped it out very nicely. Mm-hmm. I don't want a VAT. I've written about, about this in the Wall Street Journal. Evaluate the reason tax. is, mm-hmm. yeah, and the reason is that if we get a VAT, it's going to be added on. Right. What I did in my Wall Street Journal article some years ago was looked at all of the countries in Europe that, ex- that adopted VATs in the late 60s and mm-hmm. looked at what happened to growth of government spending and government revenue. Mm-hmm. And in all but one case, it grew dramatically. So they're going along a little above us, but growing government growing at the same rate. And then they go like, you know, not 45 degrees, but 25 degrees. And we're going at three degrees in terms of the slope. And so, you know, and and a VAT will get us a substantially larger government. I fear that we're going to go in that direction because that is the, I mean, the reality is for all this stuff ProPublica is talking about, I'm guessing they know that middle income and, and lower income people don't pay a whole lot of their income in federal taxes. And by middle, I don't mean you or me. I mean, middle, middle. I mean, people making like 70,000 or less. Right. And, and so the way to get them is going to be with a VAT. And that's a big reason I don't want to. I don't want to get them and I don't want government to grow even more. OK. And if you wanted Mr. Zuckerberg or Mr. Bezos to chip in more, how would you go about that? I don't want them to chip in more. In other words, I think that they're using their money very well. Larry Summers, by the way, who's no opponent of taxing um, rich people more opposed uh, the wealth tax. And he the gave this really great presentation right. talking about how, you know, you look at that list of those 10, this is before ProPublica, those right. people are using their wealth pretty productively. Why would you want to go after them? And so uh, I don't want them to chip in more. Uh, I just want everyone to chip in less. Yeah. I mean, it gets to a very interesting uh, idea about America itself, which is that you accumulate wealth and the question is what you do with the wealth. And we're a free society. So if I, you know, if I become a billionaire, I can just move to the Caribbean and get an island and put a fence around the island and tell everybody to go away. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, if I accumulate a vast fortune, I can become philanthropic like the Rockefellers. I can, you know, Bezos is involved in uh, phil- you know, philanthropy. Uh, Zuckerberg has an initiative. You find these people's names on hospitals and so forth. So it's not like they're pikers. It's not like they're entirely sitting on their money. But, right. you know, right. they're, I, I guess what I'm getting at is there's no, there's no standard rule for what you do with your wealth in America, which when you think about it, it's kind of the beauty of the American system. That's right. I mean, so, so let me take my own case. When I used to see a, someone who was hurting and I'd want to help the person, I'd look around for the charity that was deductible so I could help them. Uh-huh. That salt thing, that limit, uh, you know, that says I can't, you know, that, that uh, I can't deduct more than 10,000. And so I don't even itemize anymore. 
And so it's just kind of, it, it surprised me. My feeling about it was liberating. Mm -hmm. uh, I helped my wife and I probably donated about $8,000 last year to help people whose businesses were destroyed by, by, by rioters and arsonists and so on to help local people, just like less dramatic, but hairdressers who were shut down, you know? So it was just kind of liberating. And so there are all kinds of things people will do and they'll do them very differently. I think I do want to stick with my model now. I give to certain kind of politically oriented charities like Institute for Justice and, and a few others. But I think my new model is help individual people who, hey, could you use $300 because you might miss your mortgage payment this month? And someone I know, not just some stranger. I guess what you could also do if you were sitting on vast wealth is you could tell the government, well, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, number one, I will do with my money as I so please. And number two, I'm going to take the Buffett pledge and not pass it on to others. I'm going to, but once I pass away, I'll, I'll give it away and put it to good use. Yeah, that's right. That's right. By the way, one thing we do do, and I'm glad she's asked for help even less because it shows she's really moving on in the world and being independent, but is give wealth to our daughter because uh -huh. why wait till we die 20, hopefully 20 years from now, and she's in her middle ages, why not help her now when she can use it to pay, you know, rent or, or whatever. And, uh, and, you know, so um, I just think, again, I, I mean, people's favorite charity is probably their kids. And I think that's appropriate. Well, and that's the thing comes to mind when you talk about a wealth tax, David, it's sort of like squeezing a balloon, if you will. And if I want to come after David Henderson and his billions of dollars in wealth, David Henderson's going to do what any smart person is. And I assume you're smart because you made that money. And by the way, if you look at the stats, most millionaires in America did not inherit it. Um, you know, it's Tip O'Neill had a withering line years ago. He said the Republican Party is the uh, party of idiot sons of millionaires. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but if you look at millionaires in America, most tend to be self-made. Um, they're yeah. successful entrepreneurial people. But if you have that kind of drive, that means you have smarts and you're going to hire a tax attorney. <laughs> and that tax attorney is going to find ways to park your money elsewhere. So, you know, the, the federal government is going to be like Inspector Jovert <laughs> trying to trying to track down your money at all times. Um, yeah. But the you know, question would be this, David, let's close out with this. So you've uh, you wrote back in 2020 about the assault on wealth. Assault's an interesting word. Assault can take on various terms. Assault can be just me coming by and sucker punching you uh, or drive-by shooting, if you will. Assault could also be me just pummeling the heck out of you. Now, is it an assault or are we looking at more of a longer siege on Wolf? Oh, I see. I think it is a siege now that you put it that way. And yeah. the reason I use the word assault is it's not just you criticizing the wealthy. I'm not going to use me because that's not who's in the right. crosshairs, but it's not just you criticizing the wealthy or people criticizing them and hectoring them and saying they should pay more, but rather people wanted to use the full force of government on them. Because remember, in the IRS tax code, there are a lot of ways you can go to prison. And yeah. so, you know, the, uh, it, it is, an, a, whether you call it an assault or a siege, I think that's a really important point you make. It, it, it does involve coercion. And that was really my point in using the word assault. Okay. Well, David Henderson, thanks for doing the podcast. And again, you're a wise man because you were in Monterey, California, which is not just one of the most beautiful corners of America. It is one of the coolest corners of America right now. <laughs> All right. So get right. outside and enjoy the good weather, my friend. Thank you. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and the balance of power here in America and around the free world. 
If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. I mentioned our website before the beginning of the podcast. Uh, the uh, full uh, address for that is www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of David Henderson and his Hoover colleagues to you weekdays. Uh, you can also go on there and find uh, David Henderson's uh, wonderful writing on the assault on wealth. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.